Good morning again. My name is Andre Yalkoski. I'm the pastoral assistant and youth pastor here, and it's my privilege to be bringing you guys the Word of God for the next four weeks. Um, as Jim mentioned, Wayne is on vacation, and so God has presented this opportunity for me to be up here, um, and I'm just so thankful for that. Uh, it's been really busy for me lately, as some of you guys know. Uh, I just got married in June. Uh, we took a honeymoon, then we took the high schoolers for a week to summer camp, and then uh, we went down to San Diego for a wedding reception. And then we have moved on to campus, where my wife now works as a resident director for William Jessup, um, which is, <laughs> thanks for the excitement, Betty. Uh, it's all good things, and it's just been crazy. But one thing that I am so thankful for is to come here every Sunday. You guys are a constant for me. And to be here, to feel your love and support, um, I really do cherish it. And I know I say that probably every Sunday. I get up here and express my, my thankfulness to you guys. But I assure you, uh, it's real. Um, I just want to expand on a little bit more of what God has done in my life. As God brings about more and more opportunities like this to grow in this role here at the church, uh, I become very thankful for the people that I get to serve, which is you, the congregation. Um, some of you have seen me grow up since I was eight or nine years old, uh, when my family first started coming to this church. Uh, others of you have seen me more recently in the last couple of years, but have still been able to see how God has orchestrated me and, and guided me along this, this road. Um, all that to say is that I'm thankful for a church body, a community of believers, uh, that has so strongly supported me. I was recently in a conversation with Jeff and, and Wayne over lunch about uh, just you guys, the, the congregation, and, and we were specifically talking about the Hughes. Um, I don't know if you guys, some of you guys may remember the Hughes. They were an important part of this church a while ago before they moved away to be closer with family, but it was Bob and Arlene, are a dear couple, and uh, my I was sharing with Jeff and Wayne, my fondest memory was when I was in high school, and I used to do yard work here for the church. I was mowing lawns, and uh, one afternoon I was mowing lawns, and Bob and Arlene came out of the church from some meeting, and they were just waiting on the walkway as I was, and so I assumed that they wanted to talk to me, and um, if you guys know Bob and Arlene, just them standing there is such a beautiful picture. They're just kind of like, hold, Bob's holding Arlene, and so I walk up, and I say hi, and they tell me hi, and that they're they just wanted to encourage me, and they said they were praying for me. And you guys probably know this. It was, one, it was something that I felt that I know that they were actually praying for me. It wasn't just being said, like, hey, yeah, we're going to be praying for you. I felt that they were praying for me, even just by them sharing that. And so I hold that memory, and I, I think that it, uh, it spoke volumes to me and exemplifies the kind of church that we have here, the kind, kind of people that we have here at East Parkway. And the care and the love and the support that I've seen, that I've felt, that you guys have instilled in me uh, is something that I don't take lightly. And I, I view it as a glimpse of what God intended, intended here on earth for his people. I, even in college, when I first went to the Philippines and then Greece the next year, knowing that, is that me, by the way? Am I doing that? Okay, I'm just going to keep going. Um, I went to Greece, and I knew that this church uh, was praying for me and hearing the encouragement to follow God in a time when I wasn't sure what my future was, uh, you guys, God was speaking through you guys to me. And so I just have a lot of thankfulness. Um, it has, it's had a huge effect on me. I believe that, that was a part, all of those things, all those stories were a part of God bringing me back here to work here to serve you guys. Um, and so as I move forward with life, pursuing God and whatever God has for me, I know that I have a church that loves me and supports me in the most wonderful way. And I hope that you all can say that about this church, too, is that you guys feel like you have a church that supports you and loves you and encourages you. 
uh, to transition a bit, I think that's how Paul would say, that's what Paul would say about the church of Philippi. Uh, the church of Philippi was his first church that he planted in Europe, and there was a certain bond and affection that he had between them, kind of like I have this bond and affection with you guys here at East Parkway. So we're going to be in the book of Philippians uh, for the next four weeks, taking one chapter at a time, and I'm excited for what God has for us. This series is called uh, Living the Christian Life. I didn't come up with that on my own. I had the help of scholars and texts and... Um, <laughs> But it it's best conveys what we're going to be studying uh, through this series. Just a little background on the book of Philippians. Paul, who's the author, uh, wrote to the church of Philippi, most likely from Rome, where he was imprisoned at the time. And uh, he was seeking to encourage the church, that he was still himself, that he was totally fine, uh, not discouraged, even with the possibility of death looming ahead of him. He was writing in response to the church, sending their support through Epaphroditus, a member of the Philippian church, and while this letter contains some updates for that church specifically, its main purpose was as a source of encouragement to the church of Philippi, and it presented the challenge for the people to keep pursuing God. Paul wanted them to be living the Christian life and live it to the fullest together. And as we'll soon find out, that was best exemplified by Christ, but also by Paul himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. So let's open up our Bibles or open up your phone apps, whatever you prefer, to the book of Philippians, um, chapter 1, and read along as I read aloud. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel." For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." And yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell." I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. God, we, we come before you today, Lord, and we just want to praise you for who you are, the wonderful, almighty, sovereign God that you are, and how you reign over our lives. We want to come before you humble, Lord, uh, knowing that we can't do it on our own, that we need you. God, I pray that you would fill us up this morning with your truth, with your word, for that you would give me the words to say and the way in which to say them. God, that your truth uh, would not just be heard, but be instilled in our hearts, and that we would learn to live the Christian life the way that you intended us to. So be with us this morning, and we want to give this entire morning to you. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So let me just recap what we just read here. Uh, we start the letter off with an introduction, which in and of itself we could probably take a whole Sunday to talk about, uh, but we're just going to cover it briefly. Paul and Timothy give this standard Christian greeting at the time of grace and peace, and before that, Paul introduces themselves as servants of Christ Jesus, which is a bit different uh, from what Paul usually does, because he usually makes the distinction that he is an apostle of Christ, but this time he states that he and Timothy are servants. And this helps to set the tone for the rest of the letter of Philippians. He then moves in verses 3 to 11 to a section of thanksgiving, which again is customary for Paul's letters at this time. And this again helps set the tone for the rest of the letter. But Paul's thankfulness in this section is a bit stronger than that of usual thankfulness in writing to churches. This church, the Church of Philippi, was one of the best supporters of Paul. And he reveals his warmth and affection for them. And as I mentioned before, this was the first church that Paul had planted in Europe. In Acts 16, 11 through 40 is when Paul first met the Philippians uh, during his trip through Macedonia. And since then, the church has continued to financially support him. And so his desire and prayers that they would grow closer to God through their love and wisdom. And he has this connection with the church, almost like a parent to a child. He just wants to see the best for them as the church matures and grows uh, and goes through the growing pains that a church does. And then we come to verses 12 through 30. And these are Paul's reflections while he's imprisoned. Which, by the way, the Romans did not use prison for punishment, uh, but specifically for those awaiting a trial or execution. So this is why the Philippians are so concerned, because Paul's future is on the line here. In these verses, he assures the Philippians of the advancement of the gospel despite his current circumstances by describing the ministry opportunities that his imprisonment has provided as well as his hopes for the advancement of the gospel through his life or death. His confidence and joy convey his trust in God that despite what may happen, he would be delivered and God would be glorified. He then exhorts the church to walk with God even in suffering. And this is where I'd like to focus today on verses 12 through 30. And I've broken it down into three parts. The first is Paul's testimony, verses 12 through 18. His imprisonment is meant for the advancement of the gospel. That's his testimony. The second is his convictions, verses 19 through 26. His convictions are that to live is Christ 
and to die is gain. And the third part would be his exhortation to the church, found in verses 27 through 30, and that is his encouragement to walk worthy of the gospel. So first, his testimony, verses 12 through 18. This imprisonment of Paul has the church discouraged and grieved, so Paul addresses this by turning their perspective from a man's struggle, from his struggle, to God's gain. He knows that they are worried for his life, but he wants them to see what is really going on and reminds them of his purpose. Push temporary occupied. We got it? Yeah, it's good. Okay. Cool. You might have to do it on that side, too. You guys are feeling I'm feeling it, too. It's, like, really hot. It's really hot up here. Yeah, we're just building. Oh, there we go. Okay. Thank you, Lord. All right. Where was I? He know. Okay, so he's turning. <laughs> he's addressing this issue, their worry, by turning their perspective from a man's struggle, his struggle, to God's gain. He knows that he's, they're worried about his life, but he wants them to see what is really going on and reminds them of his purpose. Paul emphasizes the advancement of the gospel, which implies this forward charge with the light of truth into the darkness of the world. This charge advancing the gospel is purposeful. It's bold. It does not fear anything in the darkness. It doesn't fear worldly struggle, imprisonment, or even death. So Paul is just sharing his testimony to encourage the church, shares that imprisonment can't stop a man like him, a man living purely for God's purposes. He doesn't view his situation as a hindrance to the gospel, but rather the opposite. And this is why you can say in verse 13 that he is imprisoned for Christ. And we see that his imprisonment inspires others to proclaim Christ in verse 14. The Faith Life Study Bible put it this way, Paul's imprisonment does not mean that the gospel was held captive. On the contrary, those around Paul were held captive to hearing the gospel. Paul's heavenly vision and kingdom-oriented heart and God-centered focus even allows him to rejoice in those who preach Christ out of rivalry to him in verse 15, which I think is just incredible. Just a side note on that point about the gospel being spread for those, like, by those contrary to Paul, it's most likely that those people had an issue with Paul just personally. Maybe it was his poor speaking ability or his knack for getting into suffering, but whatever their reasons, it came from a heart lacking love and wanting to see Paul fail. And the ESV Bible, study Bible says that, but Paul, like Jesus, is not concerned for his own interests, and he'll rejoice as long as the gospel is progressing. I think, I know I need to look at ourselves and our criticism of others who are sharing the gospel and see if we are really being like Christ or Paul in those moments. Even if someone does it in a way that we don't agree with or uh, isn't as a refined communicator as we would prefer, or people that we just don't get along with, Does it really matter if the gospel is still being advanced? The real gospel being presented and people coming to real relationship with Christ? If so, we may need to rethink our hearts on the matter. But back to Paul's testimony about his imprisonment. He is imprisoned for Christ. His selflessness here is remarkable. Not only is he selfless in who his imprisonment affects, not himself but the good of others, but who it is about. It's not about him, it's about Christ. It'd be very easy for one to focus on how awful this imprisonment was, to just convey all the the complaints in life, uh, or to ask for all the prayers that he be released from prison. But Paul lays down any pride and selfishness in the midst of suffering. 
which is not easy. And maybe it's all the suffering that Paul has gone through or even put people through that allows him to have such a perspective. And this would not be by accident, but by God's providential plan that Paul would be in this exact situation and have the heart of Christ, others-focused, kingdom-oriented in this moment. It says, this statement says so much, these verses say so much about where Paul's mind is at, where his heart is at, his perspective on living, which we'll get to shortly. But just imagine the testimony that he carries, that where whoever he meets doesn't hear that he's in prison for a crime, but he was in chains for Christ. His testimony points to Christ in every way, despite the hard earthly situation. It's Paul's heavenly vision here where you can clearly see the dichotomy in living between heaven and earth. Earth may be a struggle, and by earthly standards, things may not be good when sharing the gospel, when living the gospel. But in heaven, the angels are singing, and Christ is rejoicing that his truth and saving grace are being shared. It's the same moment, but different perspectives. And it can be really hard to see that heavenly vision or to even want to see it in that way, to want to see life in that way. But, but through Paul's testimony here, we learn that having that heavenly perspective allows us to live in the heavenly mindset. It gives us resolve. It makes us determined to be his no matter what. Paul's testimony, his entire life, pointed to Christ. I think Paul could have been anywhere, been in any sort of situation, and his heavenly perspective would have allowed him to see how his life points to Christ. Can we see God working in our lives, even when things are hard? Do we have that heavenly perspective? This, section 12 through 18, is where Paul, how Paul lands on his convictions. So number two is convictions, from 19 through 26. He starts by giving us an indication as to where he's at mentally. He's asking for their prayers for deliverance. And I believe he leaves it, leaves it a bit ambiguous as to whether he means deliverance from his present situation or if he means deliverance in the ultimate sense of joining our Heavenly Father. As we read on, we see that he is caught between the glorious thought of being with Christ, which would mean no more suffering, but rather pure joy and praise being in God's direct presence, or to continue to be a vessel for God's truth in the growth of the church, which would mean suffering for the advancement of the gospel. Then we come to verses 21 through 26, and these are some of the most impressive verses in the entire Bible to me. They are verses that convey the example of the mindset to have on earth, where trials and troubles, struggles, pain, suffering, hurt, sadness, loss, can all become overwhelming. Through all these things, it can be so easy for the mind to start to point inward, to focus on the person who it's happening to, to how this affects me. And yet Paul, filled by the Spirit, is dedicated to being consumed with God's concerns and his values and his purpose for his life. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is quite the statement. Briefly on this verse, just the story. I remember in high school, I was in high school in youth group, um, and Pastor Wayne, then the, uh, then the youth pastor, was going through Philippians, and he was covering this verse, and it just stuck with me. From that night on, I remember coming home, and I was like, this is the verse. I remember for some reason, and it's good, like people at that, we were all, my friends were like, what's your life verse? What's your life verse? And I didn't have one. And I found Philippians 121, and I was all about it. I was like, this is my life verse. I was doodling it on everything, all my notebooks, my backpacks. I think my arm had Philippians 121 on it all the time. 
Um, I think part of the attraction to it was that it was so extreme. It was this all-in mentality, life and death. And I remember thinking, um, this is easy. If I'm living, I'm serving Christ. I'm living, I'm a Christian. Sweet, done, I'm doing it. If I die, I get to be with God. That's my gain. Awesome. It's a win-win. Love this verse. A few weeks later, I shared with Wayne, youth pastor Wayne, um, I don't know how it came about, but I told him that I had my new life verse, Philippians 121, and he asked me what I thought it meant, um, what, he, what I thought it meant, and so I said, well, if I'm living, I'm serving Christ. If I die, it's my gain, and he's, he gave me one of those Wayne nods, and I don't know <laughs> if you guys know, maybe it's for just those of you who have been students of him, uh, but he does it in a way that he, he affirms that he heard you, um, <laughs> But you can tell he's thinking thoughts, but he's not sharing those thoughts with you because he wants you to reach that on your own, that, that conclusion. So he just gave me one of those, hmm. I feel like I have it down because I've gotten it a lot from him <laughs> <laughs> over the years. But he just nodded. And so I was left thinking, maybe I don't get this verse. Um, and I'm so glad he, he did that because I went back and I... I think I understand now uh, what this verse is really talking about. And I think it's verses 12 through 18 that unlock what this statement is about. And that it's not about us. It's all about God's kingdom. So Paul's perspective is a heavenly one. Seeing life and the world through God's eyes, Paul knows that to live is, is to be Christ to other people. To be the servant. To further the gospel. And to die is still for God's gain. God's kingdom because of the advancement of the gospel that would occur through his death. God would use Paul's death for his gain. God was going to use Paul no matter what happened, but it was God's kingdom first and foremost that would gain. Yes, we still gain by being with God, and that will be amazing and incredible, but that's not God's primary goal in our life or death. His primary goal is the advancement of his gospel. So to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul isn't just sharing his musings here in verses 19 through 26, but his convictions of the Christian life. And he is living out those convictions by being a Christ-like example to the Philippians. Christ, who we know sacrificed it all in his life and death, and life again brought glory to God, advanced the kingdom, and made possible the gain that we can all have. Paul is following Christ's example and is modeling the service-driven life that Christ has called us to. He is willing to sacrifice despite all the things that are happening to him, the suffering that he's going through, the possible death that he awaits. And yet, through all that, we as readers, we're not focused on Paul. We're focused on everything else around him, Christ and his mission, how Christ wants to reach the people around Paul. He's an instrument. Paul's a vessel, a servant of Christ, and he knows it, and he embodies it. He lives by this. These are his convictions. He, he sort of views himself as a pawn. Uh, now, about pawns, as many of you know, the youth group, quick story, goes to summer camp every year at Hume Lake at, uh, at Wildwood. And one of the many things that I appreciate about Wildwood is how they approach their staff. These college-age students uh, who aren't counselors or staff or leaders. I mean, they, they are all those things, but they're called pawns. And this term, as many of you know, comes from chess. It's the, the pawn is the smallest, one of the most limited pieces on the board and is often sacrificed 
for the player to get in a better position or to, to get ahead in the game. These pawns are sacrificed. And these pawns at Wildwood have the same mindset of themselves for the summer, these counselors. They're sacrificing making money. They're sacrificing their time. They're sacrificing even their health by, putting, by being constantly seven days a week available to these students who are coming up for 10 weeks. Um, almost all day, just putting themselves out there, wanting to serve, that these high school students coming up to camp would know God more, would be able to see a servant-like heart being lived out. And this is Paul's view. Paul wants to do whatever it takes, even his own life, if it would bring advancement to the kingdom. Now, I'm not making the analogy that life is a game and that we are God's chess pieces, uh, but for the same reason Hume uses the term, I just want to draw from that idea of service and sacrifice. Paul then goes on to reveal some of the thoughts that landed him on these specific convictions. And I appreciate his honesty in verses 23 through 24 when he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He's trying to determine what he should desire. And that's incredible practice and discernment and wisdom in seeking God, what God desires of us, right? I don't often do that. It was in my study, I was just like, wow, I can't believe Paul's even saying this. I, I love it. Um, either way, he realizes the essential truth. Our lives are, as Christians, come from Christ, and our purpose is for him. And there is joy in this, too. When he's hard-pressed between the two, it's not that he prefers to die, to die, but will stay because it's the right thing to do, but he's bummed out about it. No, I mean, of course he wants to be with God, because he's, but he's equally happy for staying or for leaving because his joy comes from what will bring the most glory to God. And at this point, staying will bring the most glory to God. He still desires to be set free and to be with Christ in his death. Calvin puts it this way, Persons in despair have recourse to it from having become weary of life. Believers, on the other hand, willingly hasten forward to it because it is a deliverance from the bondage of sin and an introduction to the kingdom of heaven. And Paul wants that introduction into the kingdom of heaven. He wants that immediate connection with Christ. He wants to leave sin and this world behind. But he knows, and he takes joy from it, that staying will bring more glory to God. We as believers don't have to regard death with horror, but rather see the eternal life that follows death and rejoice in it overwhelmed in the blessing that is intimate relationship with God forever. And that can be hard to imagine or desire for someone whose life has not faced much hardship or has not thought about the end of life, but it doesn't make it any less important or necessary. Specifically to the younger generation here right now, myself included, a lot of times our focus is on ourselves and our gain. And a part of the maturation process in life, I think, is learning how to think of others and their eternal gain. It would serve us well to think of others for Christ's sake with his eyes, no matter what is happening in life to us, just as Paul is doing here. Paul's convictions are clear. Our lives, whether in life or death, are for the glory of God. They serve his purposes. We need to have the mind of Christ and to see the world, love the world in the way that Christ would. So Paul first shared his thanksgiving to the Philippians. He shared his testimony about what God is doing while he's imprisoned. And then he shared his convictions that have come from his time there 
about service and sacrifice and how he's committed to that to the death and how we should all be committed to that too. And now he exhorts them in how to live for Christ. So the third section is this exhortation from verses 27 through 30. And these are Paul's instructions to the Philippians to follow Christ with everything they have. He mentions three specific things in this section. I want to bring them to light. He states that number one, they're citizens of Christ. Number two, the unity that they must have. And three, the suffering that they will go through just as Christ did and Paul is going through in this passage. So first, citizenship. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This phrase comes from the Greek word polytueste. I have no idea if I said that right, but I can show you the word. It's real. (laughs) It can be translated as only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Citizens. And Paul used this specifically for the church of Philippi as they viewed themselves as firm members and as an extended province of the Roman Empire. And Paul wanted to remind them of their allegiance to Christ. They may have looked to Caesar as their example, as many Romans did at the time. But Paul is telling them to look to Christ as their example. We who adhere to the gospel follow gospel laws, which make us citizens of God's kingdom. What a good reminder for us today, for when we stake our allegiance to this country, it feels different than it may have 50 or 20 years ago, when by doing so it felt like you were reminded of God's hand over his people. But now, when pledging allegiance to this country, it's oftentimes that the problems of this country and the issues come more to mind than that of God's sovereignty. But we have to remember that ultimately and primarily this is not the kingdom that we belong to. Our citizenship belongs to Christ. He is our true leader, the perfect example, our savior, and he is our king. And we have to let our manner be worthy of him. Next is unity. Verse 27 says that we need to be standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The first being one in spirit means that we have the same uh, we have the same views. We believe in Christ. The second to have the same mind, uh, or sorry, to strive together for the faith means that we have the same heart. So we have the same mind and the same heart, standing firm, striving side by side together. Calvin likens it to warfare in this part. Paul is calling us to recognize our common enemy, recognize that we are all fellow soldiers in a common war. We must band together and be united in both our minds and our hearts. We are to be one in spirit as a church together. And that through unity in the face of opposition, it will speak of the truth. Paul's hope is that as the Philippians stay unified, it would point to God as the sole reason for their strength and unity and no matter what kind of persecution happens. We hear about this first in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, as Jesus taught that persecution is a sign that you belong to Christ. Again, I want to speak to the younger generation. We will be for our lifetime and already are living in a society, in a country, and in this world whose standards will be so far from God's truth. We are and will, I believe, have to stand firm, so incredibly firm together in what we know and believe in the gospel. You guys may know your church history and be familiar with the persecution of the believers throughout time, as well as the martyrs 
that have given their lives for Christ. And while that is not common in America right now, the fight to live for Christ every day and to be a church is as real as ever. Those are still things that we need to do. This is a call to be a church. This brings out the importance of of going to church, of having a church body, of being a part of a community of believers. You younger people, the high schoolers, even the college people, wherever you go in life, where college takes you or life after, find a Bible-believing church and stand firm in the faith with them, united in spirit, and strive side by side together. We cannot waver in our beliefs, the opposite of standing firm. Today, perhaps, the only way to be accepted by the world is by saying, that's for you, but not for me, or by accepting the sin of people's lives and being okay with not confronting them with the gospel. But if we're saying okay to that, we have to take responsibility for that. We cannot blame it on the society that we come from. And what scares me is that's the norm that this younger generation, as I teach youth group, the junior high and high school students, that's the norm for them. Is that They're just saying, it's, well, it's the times that we live in. It's not my place to say anything. But maybe it's because we don't know what our Heavenly Father says in the Bible, what the truth is. Maybe we don't know. Yes, we must go to church and learn and grow. We go to life groups and youth groups. Um, prayer group and learn and mature in our faith but we also have to take it a step farther we must also pursue God personally not just corporately again younger generation do you know what the Bible says do you want to know do you want to stand firm in the gospel as Paul says here to the Philippians do you think you could stand firm stand firm with one mind striving side by side as the world comes at you every day. These are actions. These are verbs. They require us to move, to do, to work, to put energy forth, to put forth conscious effort. They will not just happen by attending church, no matter how regular church attendance may be. Striving and standing firm requires something of us in order that unity be achieved and the gospel advanced. And this has to start now. So we've had citizenship and unity. And now the last exhortation from Paul, from Paul to the Philippians is to suffer for Christ. Verses 28 through 30 are about how we're supposed to be serviceable to the glory of God, which is the purpose of our creation. There's so much warning about the hardship that we go through as Christians. We're hearing about it almost every week when Pastor Wayne preaches. Uh, it was covered uh, when I was going through Acts at the beginning of the church. Suffering for Christ is all over the New Testament. Letters from the apostles to the churches to be ready for the trials that they will face and to stand firm and continue in the advancement of the gospel no matter what. And even further, Paul says here that we're to count suffering as a gift. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Granted to us. Such an interesting phrase used for suffering. Usually we try to avoid such things in life. And those who seek out suffering are weird and abnormal. But suffering for Christ is a different story. It's a gift. Just like receiving faith from God is a gift. The suffering in this context, I believe, is in reference to opposition faced in regards to the faith. Hostility from unbelievers. 
Paul is telling us today to take the gift, receive that suffering, and know that for Christ, that suffering, like Paul's, can advance the kingdom of God. And as we learn from, the, uh, from this first chapter, it's not about us. It's about, God, it's about God's kingdom all the time. So these are exhortations, and Paul's sacrifice will be rendered useless if the church in Philippi and the church today do not continue to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. So we have to recognize and live by our citizenship to God, be united in mind and heart and strive together, and be willing to suffer. Now I just want to close by focusing on living the Christian life today, right now, presently. What does it mean for us, East Parkway? You can sense the desire Paul has for the church in Philippi to be a people pursuing God with everything they have. I believe that Paul's heart is aligned with God's heart here, and he sees the world, he sees his life, and the life of believers in a way that God intended. There's this excited encouragement because he knows the potential there is amongst the believers, amongst this church, and to see the church live a life worthy of the gospel would be such a glorious thing. I think Paul is saying the same thing to us here. What a glorious thing it would be if all of us are living in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's given us his testimony. He's shared his convictions with us. And we've heard his exhortation to us. So here are three points of application from our passage. As we live life for Christ to the fullest and together. First, from 12 through 18, his testimony. Realize that your testimony speaks to God's glory no matter what is going on in life. Pastor Wayne alluded to this last week as he talked about kingdom stories and that we all have kingdom stories. Paul is in some dire circumstances but saw with a heavenly perspective the reality of his situation and that it was and would continue to bring glory to God. Pray for God to give you that same perspective, that heavenly perspective, that you could see how God is using you to be a witness for his kingdom. That's number one. Number two, from 19 through 26, from his convictions, know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Life is not about seeking personal gain or comfort, but about seeking the advancement of Christ's kingdom. You could put it this way. To live is to amount to serving, to Christ, serving Christ. To die would be seen as gain for God's kingdom. Here in Philippians, it was gain in the sense that Paul would be freed from his trouble-filled uh, life on earth to rejoice in Christ's presence but also through his death, the effect that his death would have on the kingdom, on the rest of the believers. Do we have the same convictions about our own life? Are our convictions based on Christ and on his gospel? Do we live by these convictions? Matthew Henry stated, It's the undoubted character of every good Christian that to, that to him to live is Christ. The glory of Christ ought to be the end of our life. The grace of Christ, the principle of our life, and the word of Christ, the rule of it. So we need to realize that our testimony speaks to God's glory, that we know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And number three, refuse to be afraid and be willing to suffer. Again, suffering in a sense of direct opposition to sharing the gospel. Worthy of the gospel means to refuse to be afraid and be willing to suffer. That means that we have to choose those things. We have to choose to refuse and we have to choose to be willing. And we can do that together as a church as we stand firm and strive together side by side, serving him with everything that we have.
So let's live this Christian life, having heard the testimony of Paul, learning his convictions about living this life for Christ, and being exhorted to accept the gift of suffering with joy in Christ. Let's pray. God, we, we come before you, Lord, and we want to acknowledge that you are God and, and we are not. We are your servants, God. Our lives are for you. God, it's encouraging to hear the testimony of someone like Paul who gave everything he had for your kingdom. And God, we want to do the same. We want to give everything that we have. Use the gifts that you've given us, the skills that you've given us. We want to use those things for your kingdom. And God, I pray that you would instill in our hearts the convictions that come from your truth, your gospel, and that those would constantly be on our mind, that we would live by those convictions all the time, be it at home, with family, at work, at school. God, that our lives would be a light to those around us. And God, I pray that you would help us to be willing to suffer. God, it's, such the, it's so much easier said than done, but we know that it's possible only through you. We love you, God, and we just pray that as we leave today, we be encouraged, we be empowered, Lord, to live for you every moment. So we give this time to you, and we give our lives to you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.